Go ahead, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 6, John 6. If you are here last week, you remember we were talking about uh, beholding Jesus. We talked about believing Jesus the week before, and then we talked about beholding Jesus. We looked at these two miracles that Jesus did where he literally just defied the laws of gravity. He fed 5,000 men with five loaves, two fishes, and then he did this thing where he, he walked on water to his uh, disciples. And they freaked out and they were fearful and he calmed their fears. And what we really looked at primarily was that in those things, Jesus is driving at something deeper. So although Jesus can provide us with food that's beyond like our natural resources, what he was really offering the people was a greater provision. Remember we said that? We said Jesus provides the bread and the fish, but there's something greater that he wants them to connect with, that he wants them to receive. And even when he walked on the water to his disciples, this crazy miracle um, that just, again, just freaked out the disciples. They see this this person that looks like a ghost walking on the water to their boat as they're experiencing this, this, this stormy night. And we saw that even in that, there, there was a greater fear um, that the Lord was trying to instill in his disciples, right? So he, he calms their fears by, by instilling in them a greater fear, um, which is to have just a greater uh, reverence and awe and understanding of his greatness and who he was, that he really was uh, God in the flesh. And so what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to look, uh, look at chapter 6, picking up in verse 22, and we're going to see this dialogue that Jesus has with these people who he had just fed. They follow him. They follow him back across the water. And um, he has this dialogue with them because what they were doing in that is they were, they were trying to get another free lunch out of Jesus, right? For lack of a better way to put it. They loved that they were just given all this food and not just food, but an abundance of food. And they were like, well, this is a guy that we want to just like kind of stay connected with. So they follow him back across the water. They find him and he has a dialogue with them about this idea of them going after him just for some food, just for some bread, just for some fish. And uh, we're going to see that he offers something to him that he was trying to get across to them when he did the miracle in the first place, which was that, look, you guys are going after the wrong bread. You guys are going after food that just doesn't last You guys are going after something that can't endure uh, through life and through the eternity that happens after this life. And so we're going to see what it is that he presents to them as we pick up here in verse 22. we got a lot to read, so I'm just going to dive right in. Uh, John 6, 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from... Uh, Tiberius came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, uh, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What, What work do you perform? 
Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. But all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do, you, do, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father, except he was from God. He has seen the father. Truly, Truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats, feeds on my flesh, and drinks my blood, abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Well, this is the word of the Lord for us today. There's a lot of there's a lot of verses. We're going to do our best to get through those passages. Uh, Jesus is being very clear about what he's saying, right? He keeps repeating himself over and over again. I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds on me will have eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. The message couldn't be any clearer, and yet the people were not quite getting it. Melissa and I were having a conversation uh, recently about... Some of, the, some of the church movements that kind of emerged when we were younger, things that emerged in the, the 70s and the 80s, and actually even before that, but we were talking about some of these church growth movements that we were a part of as we were growing up. And, and the, big, the big thing that was happening at that time is the churches were asking the question, uh, like, how do we grow our church? How do we start a, a movement? How do we get people into the pews? Right. Um, Because, you know, culture's changing. It's the 60s. It's the 70s. You know, people's uh, relationship with religion and church, it's changing. We're seeing that today. 
you know, um, with, with, uh, with new generations that are, that are either coming through the doors of church because they want to be renewed in some things that maybe in their lifetime was absent or people that are a little bit older and they're maybe walking out the doors of church because they're seeing things that just don't line up with their, with their worldview. But what we saw when we were growing up, we saw a series of churches that were asking a question, which was, what can we do that will work? in terms of getting people through the doors. And the answer really was, in a lot of ways, it was we, we will meet their felt needs. That's how we're gonna do it. We're gonna see what it is that they want. We're gonna locate the pain points in their life and we're just gonna try to meet those felt needs. We will teach them how to have better marriages, be better parents, find peace in, in their relationships, excel in, in the workplace, in the university, wherever they're at, find ways for them to flourish in those ways. In fact, there's a, there's a well-known church planning network right now that has churches preach a 10-week series on marriage when they plan. Like, that's part of the program. Um, by the way, none of these are necessarily bad things, okay, um, in and of themselves. But here's, here's the issue with that, is that they don't deal directly with the God-sized hole that people bring to the pews, that you brought to the pews today, right? A God-sized hole that can't be satisfied by telling you how to excel in the problems that you're experiencing in life, right? Do you need help in your marriage? Yeah, me too. Do you need help as a parent? Do you need help as a friend? Do you need help as a son and a daughter? Do you need help in the workplace? Do you need help in the classroom? You do. Do you need help in all of those things but as we're talking about the thing that you walk through those doors to receive within the gathering of the church, is it just tips and tricks and advice in those areas? Or is there something deeper that needs to be tapped into so that what you're learning and what you're growing can affect all of those areas that we talked about? And again, I'm not saying like don't get, don't get help with marriage and parenting and, and how, how to be a better friend and, and all of those areas. Th those are good things. But these movements started as a way to tell people to come into church to receive a certain thing that then grew them in a certain way, Right? So gave them sort of this initial impression of Jesus and the church and how it's all supposed to function. And so if it's true that what you win people with is what you win them to, then what people were being win to was kind of this generic brand of Christianity that over-focused on felt needs over faithfulness to Jesus, Right? It was driven by pragmatism, which means whatever method provides success, that's what we employ. Which is fine when it comes to some things, right? Like that, when it comes to baking, yeah, be a pragmatist, right? Talk to Beth Knowles about that, right? She's, one of, she's our, our famous baker at the church, right? I mean, she got, she, the, the ingredients need to be in those mixes, right? Um, so pragmatism is great when you're gardening, Right? Pragmatism is great when you're changing the oil in your car. There's like a method, get to it, do it right, here's, here's the results as, the, as, as you function in that way. Um, and by the way, I'm not talking about prosperity gospel stuff. Um, I'm talking about churches where the gospel was represented but was not primary as the only food that contains the one ingredient that has any power to nourish our souls. Maybe you grew up in an environment like that. Maybe you're somebody that came to substance and you just said, man, I just, I, I, I was hearing this one thing and now when I come here, I, I hear you guys really focused on the message of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel. Like, I just feel like that's all you guys do is just double down and double down and double down on that. And I say, yeah, and how's that going for you? And they're like, it's work, it's helping, it's helping me, right? 
It's helping me in all of these other areas. And that's because this is the true food. This is the true bread. So we're going to look at two summary statements where Jesus does a couple things. He declares himself to be the true bread that must be consumed in order for a person to secondly be secured and preserved by God the Father, which is what leads to eternal life. So the first thing we're going to look at is this. Jesus said this over and over again in these passages. He said, I am the true bread. Jesus, and we've been seeing this all through the Gospel of John, he's saying, I am the one who was sent by God. Receive me. Embrace me. The people sought out Jesus. It's interesting. They traveled back across the water. They sought out Jesus. But Jesus knew something about the people. He knew what the people, what they were actually seeking as they were seeking him, right? He knew they had traveled across the sea to Capernaum because he had fed them, because he had given them something that they needed. They were hungry. They needed to be fed. Jesus provided that for them. But these were people who were attracted to Jesus, not for Jesus. It's kind of like what I described in those churches, that churches were employing methodology to get people to come through the doors as a way to attract them to something that resembled maybe a church that they felt comfortable with. The question was, were they giving them Jesus, right? These people were attracted to Jesus, not for Jesus. Not because they had listened to his words, and invited him to be the Lord over their lives because a man who provided free food, hard to resist, right? Jesus says, you want my hands, not my heart. That's what he was saying. You're seeking food that perishes. He's saying, but you don't believe me. Well, they said, what do you have to offer us then? Um, They asked that in verses 31 through 32. Moses gave us manna from heaven. Can you match that? This is like what they're saying. Show us that you're worth it, Jesus, is what they're saying. Give us the bread we want and we'll believe. And then Jesus makes this stunning declaration in verse 35 when he says, I am the bread of life. You're getting it wrong. You're not seeing it. And it reminds us of what he said to the the woman at the well. Remember a few chapters ago when he, he met with this woman at the well and he described himself as the water of life that would quench her spiritual thirst. And again, she wasn't understanding. She was just thinking of it in physical terms. Wait a minute, you mean you have some kind of a well? You can provide me for some kind of water so I don't have to work as hard? I have to come and get this water every day? This, just this strenuous task that I have to take part in? He's like, no, no, you're not, you're not getting this. I'm, what I'm offering you is me. I'm offering you myself. Kirby just prayed that in his, in his prayer. And, and, and What we notice is that the theme of Jesus, as we go through the Gospel of John, as we hear the words of Jesus, the theme of Jesus is Jesus. That's the theme. The theme of Jesus' words is Jesus. The theme of Jesus' life is Jesus. And by the way, he's not a narcissist. Like if I'm up here saying, hey, guys, the theme of my life is me and my life, you're going to go, whoa, we got to unpack that, Ronnie. we got to figure that out. There's something off in that. There's something wrong in the presentation of that. But Jesus was not a narcissist. He's offering us the very thing that's best for us. That's what he was offering these people that just wanted the bread, the physical bread, the perishable bread, right? You know, when a doctor tells you that he or she is the one who can do the surgery required to heal you of your disease, you don't say, well, aren't we full of ourselves, right? That's not what you do, right? You say, 
yes, please, and thank you. I, I need this. I need you to do that surgery on me. Jesus wants you to have Jesus. He is not unconcerned with all those other things in your life that we described. He is not unconcerned with your job. He is not unconcerned with your finances. He is not unconcerned with your family. He is not unconcerned with your education. He is not unconcerned with your hopes and your dreams and your future. He's not unconcerned with those things. They're not primary. Jesus is concerned with Jesus. Maybe you've never heard it said like that before. Jesus is concerned with Jesus, his glory being the pinnacle of your lives, being the thing that fills the entirety of your heart, right? He wants that to be your pursuit, all the while providing all those other things that are super important that he knows you need, right? Does that make sense? Maybe you've had somebody want to get close to you in your life. We probably all have this experience because you offered them something that appealed to them, but when that was gone, they, they vanished, right? It turned out it wasn't about you. It wasn't about your company or your relationship. It's just that what you had appealed to them, and when that went away, they weren't really interested in hanging with you anymore. Church can also be a place where people come, come week after week, right? You hear, hear a nice message. You sing nice songs that you enjoy. You gather with a community that you've grown to love. But there is still, there is still a lack of affection for Jesus who is preached, for Jesus who is worshipped, for Jesus who is embodied in the saints that fill up the rows of chairs in the church, right? People can love all kinds of things about Jesus without loving Jesus himself. They can seek out the blessings that come with a community that loves and serves Jesus without ever being someone whose heart has been changed to love and serve Jesus himself. And the people loved the food. Like, I don't know what kind of feast that was. I'm guessing it was good, right? I'm guessing that bread was good. I'm guessing that fish, I'm, the, all the spices were probably there. I'm guessing it was delicious, right? They loved the food Jesus provided, but they didn't understand that Jesus himself was the food they needed. Jesus tells them in verse 27, he says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus said, to do the work of God, to be somebody who's pleasing in God's sight, right, foundationally is to believe in the one who God has sent and set his seal upon. By seal, it means God is saying, this is my son. This is my beloved son. He is the one that I have sent. Believe in him. But they were unable to understand that Jesus was the true bread that they should be seeking and believing because he would fill the hunger of their souls. The, the greater appetite, right? When we talk about like the greater provision, that's what it is. There's also greater appetite that we have. Whether you know it or not or whether you believe it or not, like, like that longing and that hunger you have for things, that's, a, that's just a shadow. That's like a metaphor for a deeper hunger that you have in your life for something to be satisfied in your soul, right? There's a deeper hunger in all of us. It's the hunger beneath the hunger. Our physical hunger, it's, it's just a metaphor. It's just a metaphor for something more significant. It would drive my mom, Lorraine Martin, right? Kids aren't being named Lorraine these days, right? That's probably going to come back. 
But back then in the 40s, you named your kid Lorraine. Um, but it would drive Lorraine Martin absolutely crazy because an hour before dinner, my brother and I were just famished, right? And we, uh, we wanted to consume whatever junk food we could get our hands on to tide us over until dinner. But my mom was like, do not spoil your appetite. She didn't say it that softly or calmly. She said, just wait. What's astonishing is that she thought two teenage boys couldn't eat two dinners. I don't know why, where that came. Anyway, so it wasn't bad that we had appetites, right? It was bad that we attempted to satisfy them with less than nourishing food. And she was saying, just wait. We got all this food coming. Just wait, just hang in there. Pursue the right thing. And that's a picture of the human heart. Jesus says, don't eat, don't pursue, don't eat the food that perishes. Like, like you're getting in these boats, you're traveling over there to see me, and all you want is another Italian loaf and some fish? Like, that's what you're after? He's saying, don't, don't pursue the food that perishes. Eat the food that endures. Eat the true bread that leads to eternal life. This is about your pursuit of Jesus and his righteousness. And by the way, your pursuits will reveal if your priorities are out of sync with that, with God's priorities. Jesus does not want us seeking substitutes in our life. What is a substitute? Well, it's something other than the real thing. You guys know what a substitute is. It's something cheaper, something quicker. It's something we don't have to wait for. It's something that removes us from a place of, of obedience. It's something that tempts us to compromise our faith sometimes. It's something that ignores wisdom. It's something that only gratifies the passions of the flesh over the passions of the spirit. So what Jesus does is he, he comes in and he calls us to reconsider. So when you sit down here on a Sunday morning, a lot of what we're doing when we're going through passages of scripture is we're, we're being called to reconsider our lives. You're being called to do that right now with these particular passages. Jesus calls us to reconsider who or what we are believing to be most true in this life. Do we believe that what the world defines as the good life is the best thing worth pursuing and prioritizing? Right? And by the way, these, these are subtle things. And sometimes they're, they're beautiful, but, but they're also, they also can be lies. We've got to be really careful. We've got to be guarded. Because I, I like food that doesn't endure. I like food that doesn't endure. My flesh is drawn to things that are temporal over eternal. Because the temporal is fast. And sometimes I just want things that are fast. I want to get that appetite satisfied immediately, right? I want to have the sense that I'm full and satisfied immediately. I'm drawn to the kind of bread that leaves me hungry over and over again, not long after I've eaten it, right? We need to ponder some of these things in our life. Even right now, ponder that. What would that be for you? What is that pursuit? What is that thing that you keep moving towards, that you keep consuming? And you just never really experience much satisfaction. Even though you just keep consuming and consuming and consuming it, right? And by the way, they may not be bad things. And a lot of times they're not, which is why they're so tricky, right? Which is why they're so deceptive. They may not be bad things. But those not bad things become your everything. 
and they were in trouble, right? God provides the physical bread that we need to survive, but let's not be ignorant of what he really wants us to consume, what he really wants us to pursue and prioritize, right? As we look at verses 32 through 36, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Don't be mistaken. Consider what I'm telling you right now, he's saying. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Don't mix it up. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is making a declarative statement when he says, I am the bread of life. Come after me, pursue me, prioritize me. Make me your life. Make me the reason why you got in those boats and you came back across the water, right? Here's the second thing that we see that Jesus declares, and it's that the Father secures and preserves all who eat the true bread. Pick it up in verse 37. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And these are such encouraging and life-giving verses. The Father secures the salvation of all that he has chosen to be saved through Christ's death and resurrection and the Holy Spirit's application of it to our hearts and lives is part of that process, right? So that not only do you feel secure, not only are you secure, but the Holy Spirit who is now living inside of your heart, he assures you, he reminds you of who God is so that you remain secure in his arms, you remain secure knowing that his heart for you is that once I got you, I got you. How important is that? How encouraging is that? The father not only secures the salvation of those he saves, so it's not only just security, but he sovereignly, because he's God and only God can do this, he preserves you through life, right? So Jesus assures the people here over and over again that the father will not lose any of them if they if they go after the true food, the true bread, the Father will not lose any of them, but will raise them up on the last day. And by the way, that's a really important doctrine for us here uh, at Substance Church. Whoever God chooses to save, he secures and preserves. Let's unpack those two things just for a minute here. What do we mean when we say secure? All right, secure means God never lets go those who he calls to salvation. God doesn't, let me phrase it like this right here. Get ready, sports people. God doesn't fumble, all right? I don't know, that's what I got this week, long week. God doesn't fumble, right? God doesn't make bad calls. What? He doesn't make bad calls. Like what happened at the Super Bowl last Sunday that I didn't watch. But I'm on social media, so I heard all the outcries, right? He wasn't indecisive when he chose you. He wasn't indecisive when he chose you. He doesn't reverse the process of regeneration after he regenerates your heart, right? He doesn't change his mind after he adopts you into his family. Man, I wish I could have adopted another kid. This thing's not working out. He doesn't do that. Once you've been justified, which means pardoned of your sins, he doesn't come back and say, you know what? I think I'm going to reverse that sentence and declare you guilty. He doesn't do that. The minute he justifies you, he begins the process of sanctification. In you, it means that you are secure the minute you become a child of God. 
Ronnie, I feel like you say that all the time. I don't know what else to say. Because you know why I say that so much? Because the Bible says it over and over again. And because part of the problem that you all experience in your life is just this low-level hum of self-condemnation in your life. We talked about this in our Bible Basics classic uh, class this morning. Classic. I'm like, Ronnie, wow, you, boy, you really think you got something special going on upstairs. Um, but it's so important for us to know that, right? It's, it's, so, it's so important for us to know that you can't out-sin God's grace. And you're going to wake up next Monday and you're going to wake up after a really bad week, Right? You're going to wake up as a secure person in Christ after a week that feels anything but secure. And what you have to remember is that it's not how bad you screwed up. It's how secure the grip of God is around your life. So that you don't exhaust yourself with worry and anxiety and saying, man, if I just double down today and read a little bit more, if I just double down and pray a little more, if I just, just add, a, add another zero onto the, onto the when I click the, the, the tithing code. I mean, none of that gets you closer to God in terms of your security with him. That's why we emphasize that so much. That's why we have to emphasize that so much. You are secure. Amen. You're also preserved. He preserves those he secures. He preserves those. He will help you to persevere and endure through the ups and downs of the Christian life. So this is the allness of God. This is why when we talk about Jesus just wants you to have Jesus, he wants you to have more of himself because the more of himself includes it all. Like it's, it's, it's the entire package. Well, you couldn't save yourself. And you also don't have the ability to preserve yourself. So he's like, I'm going to save you. I'm going to justify you. And in essence, what he's saying is, and I'm, I'm going to keep you saved. Don't worry about it, right? That's what he's saying. He preserves those he saves. You will have days when it looks like you are anything but a Christian. But if you've truly eaten the true bread of Jesus... God will bring you back. We got to look at scripture, Peter and Paul, right? I don't know two better examples of that. You think about the apostle Peter and the lowest of low moments that dude had. Oh my gosh, right? He denied Jesus. His sin was no match for God's grace. Why? Because he'd already been saved by God's grace. The grace that secured him was the grace that was preserving him. You have the Apostle Paul, who was originally a Pharisee, who thought he was doing the work of God, right? But he had not had an authentic conversion to Jesus. So Jesus comes to him and shines his irresistible light into Paul's heart. Paul believes God preserved Paul. Why? Because he converted Paul. Because Paul's conversion was legit, right? So Peter, listen, Peter's present sins were not bigger than God's grace, Paul's past sins were no match for God's grace. Do you see those two examples there? Well, hold on, man, I've just been screwing up a lot. So did Peter. Well, you should see my past. You ain't gonna out-sin Paul. He has you. He has secured you. He will preserve you, right? That's literally a picture of 
everyone sitting in this room today, whoever believes has eternal life, not temporal life. There's no but after he who believes in me has eternal life. There's a period after that. That's important for us to remember. So the question for us to consider today, and this is how we'll end our time, is this, what, what are we feeding on? What are you feeding on? What am I feeding on? You look at verses 51 through 57, and Jesus just lays out these really strange sounding verses. You know, I am, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. In verse 53, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. So what Jesus is doing is saying, he's, he's referencing the inefficiency here. And we go all the way back to the Old Testament. Remember the sacrifices that the priests had to make? They had to kill a lamb. They had to shed his blood so that God's wrath would be held back from the people due to their sins. He's referencing the inefficiency of that sacrificial system in the Old Testament. When he says one must eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to receive eternal life. He's indicating that there is a deep spiritual union that happens between Christ and believers. Kind of like the imagery of a vine and branches. We are connected to him, right? Jesus was making a pretty outrageous statement here. Um, and, and it kind of sounds cannibalistic, if we're being honest, right? It's, it's a crazy statement. Until we understand that Jesus is driving at our spiritual malnourishment. And by the way, you know what one of the signs of spiritual malnourishment is? We don't know we're malnourished, right? Until God opens our spiritual eyes to the true state of our souls. It's only then that we see that we have a bread problem. I remember the beginning of COVID. Melissa started making all this incredible sourdough bread. Oh, man. I mean, once you start eating it, it, be, it literally just becomes all you, all you want. Big slice of toasted sourdough with some real butter just slathered all over it. It's the stuff of dreams, right? Babe, can we bring that back? You know? But it's not enough. It's not enough. It's a metaphor for desiring things that have a shelf life, right? God knows you need food. I remember we used to go to this, um, out in the country, we went to this uh, kind of this farm to table, supper club-y thing. I forget what it was called. But they would, um, they would give you all this locally sourced food and um, you just like kind of sit out there and they would serve it. It was just incredible. All this super fresh locally sourced food. It was just so good. Um, the next morning after the supper club, still hungry, starving, need my raisin bran combo with grape nuts and honey nut cheerios. Like, I still needed that, right? Still hungry, still starving after the incredible supper club, right? It was not enough. Remember uh, when Jesus was tempted in Matthew 4 and the dialogue that happened between him and Satan? Remember what happened? Satan goes, hey, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Here's how Jesus answered. He said, it is written, men shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. The temptation for us is to feed only on that which gives us life in this world, but provides us nothing for the next one. But Jesus offers eternal life 
for those who eat his body and drink his blood, he says. The true bread, the true wine. This is symbolic, by the way. This is us receiving the beautiful, sacrificial work Jesus accomplished on the cross and saying, I trust him for everything. I trust him for everything. I don't got a bag of things that I just sort of leave there and I unzip and I pull out when they suit me and when they work for me, when they fit. It's like, no, no, I'm opening up the bag of my life and I'm saying, I'm pouring, I'm dumping it all out. I'm saying, it's all yours. And this is what it means to eat his flesh and drink his blood. This is what it's saying. It's saying, Jesus, you are the spiritual air in my lungs. You are the spiritual food in my body. You are the spiritual vision for my eyes. You are the spiritual motivation for my heart. The question this morning is what are you feeding on? What are you feeding on? Is it like a sourdough starter that you keep baking and baking and baking? Like just this endless cycle? But you wake up the next morning and you're starving. Proverbs 13, 25 says this, the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. I don't have time to unpack that. Philippians 3, verse 18 says, for many of whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. And listen to this interesting line he has there. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. We talk about what we're feeding on, it's having a mind that is predominantly set on earthly things. But then he goes to say this, but our citizenship, where our mind, where our focus, what we need to be feeding on is heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember the frustration Melissa would have because not all of those sourdough loaves turned out perfect every time. She let me say that, you know. We need to look at what we're feeding on. We need to discern whether it's the stuff of Jesus, whether it's the things that have Jesus at the center, whether it's the things that increase your passion for Jesus, whether it's the things that heighten your gratefulness to Jesus, whether it's the things that develop your knowledge and understanding of Jesus. The invitation from Jesus is always have more of Jesus. Feed on me. Let me be the life that you truly are hungering and thirsting after. I'm going to take care of those other things. I have you. I've secured you. I will preserve you. The message of Jesus is, I love you. And I take care of those I love. Because once you are a son or daughter, you will never be removed from that status. Amen. I'm going to pray. Lord, we thank you for the true food of Jesus, the true bread of life. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for just our pursuit of of bread that fails to satisfy our hunger. These things in life, Lord, that are not bad things, but they become our everything. And we find ourselves just moving in closer and closer and developing lives of worry and anxiety and even idol worship over things that you've given us that are good, that you provide for us, but they can't be our everything. Lord, don't let us be like people that are traveling across the ocean 
to benefit from the blessings of Jesus while ignoring the person of Jesus. Lord, don't let us be a church like that. Let us be a church that is taken up and taken in with the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to be a people that in our sanctification, slowly increasing day by day, we are becoming more about the things in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you that even in this, these are slow processes for us. You are growing us slowly and with patience day by day. Lord, I pray that you would continue that work in our church. Lord, I pray that we would be able to at the same time encourage and build one another up. When we see that the progress that our brothers and sisters have made, I pray that we would be people that would say, hey, I see your progress. I see that you are somebody who is pursuing Jesus more fully, more completely, with, with greater motivations and desires for him. Lord, thank you that this is a work that you are sure to do. Help us to remember that it's a work that is very progressive and very slow. But Lord, because you've secured us, because you preserve us, Lord, you will give us perseverance and endurance because we are safe in your arms. I pray for people that are hurting this morning that need to be reminded of that safety, that need to be reminded of the closeness that you have for them. Lord, that you would, you would make yourself known in that way to them. That you'd speak very near to their heart. You'd speak words of comfort to them this morning. Lord, thank you for Christ. I pray that we can praise him right now as we, as we sing of his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.